Tonight I'd like to talk about a set of Buddhist teachings that relate to community and conflict, in some way following up on the talk of a few weeks ago when I was here with, together with Ajahn Sulak. When we go to school and read American history, or even more when we read the history of Western civilization, which when Mahatma Gandhi was asked what he thought of Western civilization, he said he thought it would be a good idea. Um, (laughs) When we read about Western civilization, it is in our history books predominantly a history of conflict, of who fought whom, who took over what kingdom or what country or what land from someone else and conquered and, and triumphed. Um, that conflict is still with us in very obvious ways, whether it is in Los Angeles, as we know, or Yugoslavia, or Somalia and Ethiopia, or Cambodia still, or other parts of Africa. And so when we look at human civilization, with such a long history of conflict, the question comes, can we live in some other way? Can we learn another way to live as humans? This is from Aristotle. He said, human beings are born possessing weapons for the use of wisdom and virtue, which it is possible to employ entirely for the opposite ends. Hence, when devoid of virtue, the human being is the most unholy and savage of all animals. We have both possibilities within us, he says. I've been reading recently a book entitled The History of Childhood, um, which looks at the way children were raised and perceived in cultures past, in ancient Rome and Greece, and in England a thousand years ago, in China and India a thousand, two thousand years ago, in South America, and how children have been treated in the major, uh, at least the major centers of so-called civilization. And for the most part, when one reads it, it is appalling. Children were, in many cases, simply possessions to be sold into slavery or to be abused or to be used for child labor. Or there was a great deal of infanticide, particularly of of, uh, girl babies. Um, It's very painful reading, but it's also, for me, important and educational because I'm trying to understand in myself what makes human beings become sick, evil, twisted in some way, and what creates healthy human beings. And part of what's actually encouraging in reading this difficult account is that child slavery, which was quite common worldwide, is no longer so permissible. It still happens, mind you, but it's not commonly part of world consciousness that it's okay. Or child labor, which even in our own country, 
there was an enormous amount of child labor, factory labor, in horrible ways for very young children, uh, less than a hundred years ago, is now seen as something wrong. And even though there is child labor around the world in painful ways, the consciousness of the way that children are held has changed, as is the consciousness of slavery. There used to be open slave markets around the world for human beings not that long ago. And now what's left is much more economic slavery, political slavery, or clandestine. But there is a change in consciousness. A group of acquaintances who I know involved with a project called the Peaceful Cultures Project spent two years with their families visiting, spending four months each in a half dozen uh, particularly peaceful cultures around the world. The Inuit Eskimo cultures, the Bushmen, the Hopi, several other cultures like this. And they came back after looking at what characterized the way these people lived together. Some of the elements were that there was a strong sense of village and community life that was lived in harmony or rhythm with nature. Secondly, that there was a strong sense of spirituality, but it was an imminent spirituality and not a transcendent one. That means they weren't waiting for the sacred and there were no teachings about when you die, you go to heaven or hell or some other realm or you attain nirvana or something someplace else. The spirituality in these cultures was in the present. It was what was alive and divine around you and it had a sense of reverence and respect for life as we know it and not put off for some other time. And thirdly, they were cultures that valued their bodies, which is interesting. So they had, for the most part, an open and beautiful erotic life. It's a good sign in a culture, I would say. Artistic life, there was dance, music, sexuality, sensuality, that life was celebrated rather than denigrated and put off for some other thing that might come later. It is possible for human beings to live wisely, to have wise relationships to one another. In the Buddhist tradition, a great foundation of the practice is the awakening of, the reminding of, the training of the joys of integrity or virtue. Not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to abuse sexuality or intoxicants. Not as commandments, not because you're supposed to or or you'll be bad, but that these are the basis of wise relationship. Our practice is a wise relationship to ourselves and a wise relationship to one another. These are what make These are what make for sane relationships, harmonious living. They're considered the entry, the gateway into the human realm. As long as you're still lying and killing and stealing and abusing sexuality exploitively or intoxicants, then you're not considered a human being. You live in some lower (coughs) realm of consciousness. The Emperor Ashoka in India, who was a Buddhist ruler about 2,000 years ago, after conquering most of the Indian subcontinent, 
became converted to the teachings of Buddhism and founded this enormous kingdom then, which lasted for many generations, following the precepts of virtuous conduct. And there's still these wonderful pillars with Ashoka's inscriptions found all around India, 2,000 years old, about the education of children or the value of crops and trees and plants, the importance of honoring spiritual life, about the importance of everyone in the kingdom being truthful and honest. Can you imagine that coming out of, say, the Democratic or Republican <laughs> convention? It's almost unthinkable, isn't it? What an amazing thing just to have honesty in a culture. And yet, in, in wise cultures, that's the ground, that's the gold with which one person relates to another, was that depth of integrity or honesty. Many people don't even think that it's possible for human beings to be that way. Kierkegaard wrote, he said, many people believe that the biblical commandments, such as love your neighbor as yourself, are intentionally a little too severe, like putting the clock ahead a half an hour to make sure that you're not late when you wake up in the morning, <laughs> that they're not really meant what they say. So we've almost given up the belief that human beings actually can speak to one another truthfully in our culture. The quality of what's called conscious action, right action, integrity, um, is that quality of living your life in harmony with what you know to be true in yourself, to make your life and your words and your actions come from what you most deeply value. Now, there were many forms in the traditional Buddhist monastery that supported this value of wise relationship. There was the recitation of the rules of the order called the Padimokkha, which we did every new moon and full moon, so twice a month, first as a recommitment to our vows, and as an assessment, we would talk with another monk and sort of talk about how we were doing with our vows. And at times, in that recitation and reminder, we would also have to ask for forgiveness for breaking them. Then there were ceremonies, pavarana, ceremony of apology, that the community would gather together after living together for a certain period of time, like the three-month rains retreat. And each of the people, including the leaders and the teachers, would speak about what they had to apologize for to the community and ask forgiveness from one another. There were councils that would meet on the regards to difficulties and discipline. In the last year of the Buddha, a man came to see him who is the chief minister of a king, and said, Our king has asked me to come and speak to you about a neighboring kingdom with whom we've been in conflict. And he wants to know if you think it is wise that we attack this kingdom and uh, we've been in conflict and see if we can beat, defeat them in battle and gain their lands and wealth. And the Buddha said, Well, let me ask about this other kingdom. He didn't just answer, you know, don't attack somebody. He asked some questions. He said, Tell me of these people, the Vajians they were called. Have you heard that they hold regular and frequent community assemblies? 
I do, my lord, I've heard such, said the minister. Then as long as they hold regular and frequent community assemblies, they may be expected to prosper and not decline. Have you heard that they meet in harmony, break up in harmony, carry on their business in honesty and harmony? I have, my lord. Have you heard that they do not establish new rules but follow the laws that have developed over the centuries in their kingdom? Following that which has been authorized, I have, my lord. Have you heard that they respect and honor the elders among them and consider them worth listening to? I have, my lord. Have you heard that they do not forcibly abduct others' wives or daughters or children and compel them to work or do things for them, to live with them? I have, my lord. Have you heard that they honor and revere sacred places? I have. Have you heard that proper provision is given for those who do spiritual practice in their kingdom? I have. So long as such provision is made, they can be expected to prosper and not decline, he said. Then he went on as a parallel and he said, Monks, my friends, this is in the last year of life, knowing that he didn't have much longer to live. As long as the community, too, holds regular and frequent assemblies, as long as they meet in harmony and speak truthfully to one another, as long as they follow the dharma that has been established and don't make up new dharma as they go along, as long as they honor and revere the elders among themselves, as long as they do not fall prey to the abuse of one another, those who are weaker, as long as they are devoted to the values of their heart, as long as they preserve mindfulness, so long will they be expected to prosper and not to decline. So these are some of the teachings about the world prospering or declining. It's partly what we do here together. We come and we gather in the name of that which is sacred in each of us to sit still, to reconnect with our breath and body and our hearts and our values, to listen in some deep way, to spend time just on a, a place and a piece of land that's dedicated to peacefulness and to attention and to caring for one another. Now, doing so doesn't mean that we still won't have conflict. Anybody who has teenagers, for example, <laughs> knows that that's part of the game. I mean, conflict is also a part of our life and our nature. Mullah Nasruddin, there's a story of him. He was uh, in the marketplace and he heard about this famous professor who was giving spiritual teachings and he went to hear him and he stood up in the middle and said, ah, I can teach better than that. The professor was really upset and said, you can, well, I will meet you in the, you know, the marketplace tomorrow and bring my followers and we shall see. So they went to the marketplace with all his followers and Nasruddin wasn't there and the professor was humiliated, angry. So he went and he found his house. Nasruddin wasn't there either. So angrily he wrote on the door, stupid oaf, and left. The following week at his class and lecture, the professor again was speaking, and Nasruddin stood up and said, well, are you going to 
tell these people the same you know rubbish that you spoke last week? The professor was really angry. He said, "Why weren't you in the marketplace?" You know. And then I went to look over your home. What kind of person are you? Nasruddin said, "Well, I know you came to look for me. I could tell because you left your name on my door." <laughs> We will have conflict. There's no way out of it. Conflict about what we believe or what we think is right or what we possess. The question is, what are wise mechanisms for dealing with conflict? The men's retreats that I've had the pleasure of attending over a number of years now with Robert Bly and Michael Mead, wonderful teachers, um, we reserve every day an hour for conflict hour. You know, and, and whoever is the leader says, all right, who has something they have trouble with? Let's get it out. Let's work with it. Let's look at it. You know? And then we have rituals for conflict. There's an insult contest for people who enjoy insulting one another to get up and see who can make a wittier and more devastating insult to the person opposite them. You know? And dance, animal dancing contests, and all kinds of ways to honor the fact that there's conflict between people and take it into the community and use it for one another rather than to create suffering with it. Conflict arises because we have such different points of view. Each of us in our own little bodies looking out with these eyes. You know, how is it done? Kid, my daughter asked me if I could do that this morning. And seeing, you know, how it looks for us. And we each see it a little bit differently. The painter Matisse said, I don't paint things, I only paint the difference between things. And that's really what creates our conflict. We see the difference between things. There was a Zen monk who was bought, brought by an acquaintance of mine to the Boston Symphony Orchestra, wonderful symphony, to hear Beethoven's Ninth, Japanese Zen monk. And at the end of this magnificent performance, uh, the man who brought him asked, what did you think of it? And the monk sat quietly for a moment, and then he said, not enough silence. <laughs> we all have our taste. We all have our way, you know, and it's not to say which is the right way. The question is, when this arises, we get threatened, our identity, our desires, what we hope, our possession, our ambition, all of these get activated in our conflict with one another. How do we handle it? Do we deny it? When there's denial, it just simmers and then comes out later in warfare or in familial combat. Some of you may know about that. I had a lot of that growing up. That was the main way my parents communicated to one another was in conflict. Um, there's a whole establishment looking for, for many years now, um, for what they call a better game than war, honoring that that competition is also a part of human nature. How can we find ways to work with conflict? I think it was Jerry Brown's notion when he first ran for president, uh, four or eight years ago, to take all of the defense industry and turn it into the space program and use all of that to, to explore the other planets, in part recognizing that that energy was there and that it would be difficult to dismantle the defense industry, so then let's use it for something more creative.
Now, in the monastic tradition, there's also conflict. Anybody who thinks monasteries are peaceful should go and live in one for a while. They're outwardly peaceful, but inwardly, people have the same problems there that they do in any other community. Have you ever lived in a community? If you haven't, well, you lived in a family, so you know what it's like. It's the same in a monastery. What does one do with the kind of conflict that arises there? There's a whole set of teachings that came out during the time of the Buddha when there was a big quarrel between monks about how they should practice and who was doing it right. It was so bad the Buddha came and tried to mediate it and they wouldn't listen to him. These monks said, no, those guys are wrong. These ones said, no, those guys are wrong. The Buddha said, wait a second, I made up the rules. You know? They would not listen. They would not listen. And so finally he went away for a while and only after a long time did he return to this particular monastery. But in this monastery, finally, when they were willing to listen to the conflict, they met together with the Buddha and a number of elders. And as they did, they established seven points for reconciliation, ways to handle conflict. The first of these was called face-to-face sitting. In this practice, Whatever dispute was there must be stated in front of the entire convocation of monks with both sides of the conflict present. This is to avoid private conversations about the conflict. Do you know what private conversations are that influence people for or against one side or another? So the first step is get it out of denial and into the open by face-to-face sitting and stating. Then the second practice is called remembrance or listening. In this, each of the parties tries to recite and remember all the details that led up to the conflict with as much clarity as possible and to listen to one another patiently as the community does until everything that they need to say has been said. Often just that, often just listening to another person has an enormous healing effect. There's a kind of respect in that listening. People so long to be heard and understood. There's quite a wonderful project that was started by some people, I believe, on the peninsula called the Compassionate Listening Project, who were concerned with conflict around the world and using the principles of listening have sent teams of delegates who were well-known business people or people in the world of politics and so forth who were trained in listening to go and listen to the most isolated people in the world. They sent a team to Libya to sit down and listen to Muammar Gaddafi's point of view about what was happening to Libya and the nations around him and his conflicts with them. They sent a team to listen to the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia They sent a team to Lebanon to hear different factions. And their only task was to go and really understand the point of view of the people there who were the most isolated, and then perhaps bring it back and communicate it to others. So the second step of this is the honoring through listening, not being defensive, not being territorial, you know that move where you're listening, but really what you're listening for is to get your kind of wait to get the wedge of your point of view and you're waiting for how you can turn it around. But real listening 
because you want to understand where does this person rest? What does what is their experience? What is their reality? With a lot of compassion. We all want that. We all want that kind of respect. I mean, if you give nothing else to your lover or your spouse or your children or your parents or your colleagues, but just that quality of listening with respect, there's this tremendous sweetness that comes. People love you for it. Then the third practice in conflict is called non-stubbornness. Those who are in conflict are expected to help resolve their own conflict. The community expects both parties to demonstrate their willingness to reach reconciliation. Stubbornness is considered to be counterproductive. So the next step is to ask each other not to be stubborn. To be ask that, the community asks that of those in conflict. It's a very interesting thing, stubbornness, isn't it? Hmm? To really look at it in oneself. And then the fourth practice is called voluntary confession. Another simple word for this is apology. It goes a very long way. Each party in the conflict is encouraged to admit their own part of the difficulty. Have you ever seen a conflict where only one side has done wrong? It's pretty unlikely. What their peace, what their shortcomings, what they might have to apologize for, even if it's their only, only their response to being wronged. And there's a wonderful sense, everyone is given ample time in this process to sit quietly, to listen, to speak truly what is their own piece in it, their own fault. And a great sense of reconciliation comes when one person apologizes. It allows another to do the same. It leads for the possibility of real, heartful reconciliation. Then the fifth practice is called decision by consensus. After all the points of view have been heard, both sides being assured wholehearted efforts to listen in a fair way and reach a settlement, then the community speaks out until they come to a consensus of what is the best way to respond. And then based on that, the sixth practice is called accepting the verdict. It is read aloud three times and asked if anyone is in disagreement with it. And if If someone is, then it's discussed further until there is consensus, until finally it can be read or spoken three times and everyone remains silent. At that point, then, those who are in conflict have agreed to place their trust in the verdict that the community reaches. And then the last piece is called covering mud with straw. During this gathering, one or more elders are appointed to represent each side in the conflict. And these are generally monks or nuns or people who are deeply (coughs) respected and listened to by others. They sit and they listen carefully, saying little. But when they do speak, their words carry special weight. Their words have the capacity to soothe and to heal wounds, to call forth reconciliation and forgiveness, just as straw covers mud, enabling someone to cross it without dirtying their clothes. 
thanks to the presence of these respected elders, the disputing parties find it easier to release their stubbornness and petty concerns. Bitterness is eased and the community comes to reconciliation. I remember when we had some very difficult meetings on the sexual misconduct of of a particular teacher some years ago in the center in, in Massachusetts. And, you know, there's no topic probably alive that can bring more heated meetings than, than sexual misconduct um, and outrage and, and various points of view and people being um, quite upset over the series of different meetings. What should we do and how should we confront this person and this and that? And finally, partway through these very stormy meetings, one of the elders at the center, Larry Rosenberg, who's a beautiful man and a, a fine teacher there, who's now in his 60s, he stood up and he looked around the room and people who were angry on all different sides, and he said, I want to ask a question of you. Which of you in this room has not made an idiot of yourself in regards to your sexuality? Please raise your hand. And of course not a hand went up. And in that moment, everything became cool again. It was so heated. How could he do this? How could she? Why didn't somebody say this? And Larry Rosenberg asked that question, and everyone saw, oh, me too. It's not just him, it's me too. He did this beautiful act with a simple question of opening people's heart to realize that we're all in it together in some way. So this is the last of these steps, covering mud with straw. To be able to do all of this requires that we cultivate the art of listening without presuming to know to really listen without knowing in our mind already what the outcome is going to be. It was the birthday of the parish priest, and the children had come with their birthday greetings and gifts. The father took the gift-wrapped parcel from little Mary and said, Ah, I see you brought me a book. Mary's father ran the bookstore in town. Oh, yes, how do you always know, the children said. Father always knows. And you, Tommy, you brought me a sweater, said the father, picking up a big parcel Tommy held out. Tommy's father was a dealer in woolen goods. That's right, how did you know? Oh, father knows. And so it went until the priest finally lifted Bobby's box. The wrapping paper was wet. Bobby's father sold wines and liquors. So father said, I see you brought me a bottle of scotch and spilled some of it. Wrong, said Bobby, it isn't scotch. Well, a bottle of rum then. Wrong again. Father's fingers were wet. He put one of them into his mouth, but that gave him no clue. Is it gin? No, said Bobby. I brought you a puppy. (laughs) Oh. To sit face to face so that there isn't all the gossip. To listen to one another without a presumption of knowing. To really listen respectfully. To practice non-stubbornness. To offer an apology for as much as you can of your part. 
to hear the decision that comes by consensus of those around you and to accept that and to cover mud with straw, to let go of that which is left so that you can be at peace with that person. To be able to do this requires that we learn the art of letting go. This is one of the arts that civilizes us. It's the art of letting go of my ideas, of how it should be, of what I want, and the fear that underlies that, or the blame. It's all their fault. They're, they're always making it happen. A woman went to a doctor one time, for all the stress she was under, and then asked her to come and check in in a few weeks. And so she did. And he said, well, how's it going? Do you feel any different? She said, no, I don't. But I've observed that other people seem a lot more relaxed. <laughs> it's kind of like that, isn't it? Whose fault is it, after all? So to be able to enter into a process of reconciliation in one's family or one's community or one's body politic, it's all the same, is to be able to learn this letting go of our view, our ideas, how it should be, what we want, what we fear, which is underneath all of those things. It's a shift of our identity from this small sense of self that we carry often with us to something that's greater, the common good, the good of the earth, uh, that which is beautiful and noble no matter what happens in the world around us, to some greater identity of our being. There's an Indian fable that's told about a mouse who was in constant distress because it was afraid of the cat. Finally, this mouse went to the village magician or wizard and asked for pity, and the magician, after a while, turned the mouse into a cat. But then, after a while, it became afraid of the dog. So the magician, being kind to the mouse, turned it into, the, into a dog. And it went around as a dog for a while, but then it became afraid of the panther that lived in the woods nearby. So the magician said, all right, and turned it into a panther the biggest animal of the jungle nearby. But after some days it came and it said, you know, there are hunters out here. I'm afraid now of the hunters. So finally, the magician gave up and turned it back into a mouse and said to it, nothing I do for you can help because you still believe yourself to be a mouse. Our identity, what we believe ourselves to be, creates a lot of the conflict and a lot of the limitations of our life. If we believe ourselves to be this small sense of what I possess and what I own and what my opinions are, then there'll be more and more conflict. The shift of identity is to let go and sense that there's some bigger dance going on that are, than our own opinions or our own possessions, or our own ideas, that there's some greater sense of values that we can follow in our life. Here's the Buddha in the beginning of the Dhammapada. He says, you too shall pass away. Knowing this, truly, how can you quarrel? Just that simple sentence. Knowing, if you knew you were going to die yesterday, yes, tomorrow, yesterday, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, 
um, a lot of the things that you're upset about wouldn't upset you very much anymore. You too shall pass away. Knowing this truly, how can you quarrel? Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hatred. Perpetuate those thoughts. This is what they did to me, the wrongs. Look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down and robbed me. Abandon these thoughts and live in love. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. So to let go is to sense, as the Buddha says, you too will die. What, how do you want to have lived in this world? Do you want to carry the whole life? He beat me, he robbed me, they did this to me, they did that. Or can you learn to forgive or let go? To forgive doesn't mean to condone that it was a good thing or that you even have to trust that person ever again or speak with them. It simply means letting go and living now, starting over with clear eyes and an open heart, not putting anyone out of your heart. Forgiveness is also a process and it can be years of grief and sorrow and pain and anger. But in the end of it, It comes to what do we most want for ourselves to let go, to be happy in ourselves. See, I can find this. Security is mostly a superstition. This is Helen Keller speaking blind as she was. It doesn't exist in nature, nor do the children of human beings as a whole experience it. Security is an illusion. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure, is it? Life is either a daring adventure or nothing worth living. So it's the art of letting go opening your eyes, seeing what's true, opening your heart. It may mean that you still stand fast for justice. You don't let anyone be harmed again, but you also stand for love. As Gandhi said, beyond my non-cooperation, there is always the keenest desire to cooperate on the slightest pretext, even with the worst of opponents. To me, a very imperfect mortal is ever in need of God's grace, ever in need of the Dharma. No one is beyond redemption. Wonderful thing to say. Beyond my non-cooperation, beyond my willingness to stand up for justice, there is always the keenest desire to cooperate, if I can, on the slightest pretext, even with the worst of opponents. So it means to stand for what is just and also to bring your heart, to your, your love, to what you do. To do this work of reconciliation in our families, our communities, in the world in which we live requires discovering this capacity forgiveness, 
coming together and practicing it in community, learning consensus. It asks of us a great courage, the courage of elders. It asks of us the love of justice and the love of all beings, not just ourselves, but everyone. When I read this piece about elders and I think about it, I realize how much we need elders in our culture, how we've lost that sense of valuing elders. You know, maybe what we have left are therapists or something like that, which is kind of a poor substitute for elders. It is, you know, or politicians. At least politicians used to be good orators. You know, now we don't even have the words, not to speak of the actions. Um, so we, we look for that. We want to have elders. We want to have that sense of community. There is, I think, in all of us a knowing of what it feels to live wisely with one another and to have a community that supports that wisdom within us. It requires a kind of courage to live in this way, to live in a civilized way. And Gandhi said at one point again, if it's a choice between violence or cowardice, I would always choose violence. Isn't that interesting? I'm not choosing cowardice at all. He said, rather, nonviolent resistance is, takes the greatest courage of all. It's based on soul force. It's the willingness to put your integrity and your heart and your love and your values into action in the world at whatever the consequences. And to do it skillfully as you can and wisely, but to bring a fearlessness in the face of the world. That's why we sit, in a way, to learn to deal with the conflict in ourselves, because it's not just the conflict between people, we find the conflict in our own hearts and minds and bodies. And then discover that place that Gandhi called soul force, that capacity to bring listening, forgiveness, non-stubbornness, honoring of one another into action in the world. When Gandhi woke up, he said, let my first act every morning be this resolve, I shall fear no one on earth, I shall fear only God, I shall not bear ill will toward anyone, I shall not allow injustice, I shall conquer untruth and injustice by truth, and in resisting untruth I shall bear all suffering and love all beings. What a thing to say to yourself every morning when you wake up. I don't know what you say to yourself when you wake up, but that's an amazing thing to say. It's not winning over your opponent that creates more conflict, but it's discovering that place in us that really seeks harmony to reconcile or embrace something greater, to include all our differences. There's a story of a farmer whose corn always took first prize at the state fair. And his habit, this farmer's habit, was to share his best seed corn with all the farmers in the neighborhood. Someone asked him why he did that. And he said, well, it's really a matter of self-interest. 
the wind picks up pollen and carries it from field to field, you see. So if my neighbors grow inferior corn, the cross-pollination brings down the quality of my own corn as well. That's why I'm concerned that they plant only the very best. Isn't that a wonderful story? It's not that you have to be right as opposed to someone else, but the kind of listening or reconciliation or respect that that process talks about is that which honors all of us, where we all plant seeds of our own loving kindness, of our own virtue, of our own caring and integrity. Sometimes people ask what I call the Hitler question. I get asked it regularly when I talk about forgiveness. It was in the German retreat a few weeks ago. Yes, but what about? You know, and I, there isn't some simple answer. There was a panel recently, in a, a few weeks ago, for this foundation for nonviolence in San Francisco on a, a whole kind of teaching seminar on bloodthirsty tyrants, nonviolence and bloodthirsty tyrants. What do you do in the face of that? And I'm sorry to have missed it because I wanted to find out what the answer was. <laughs> But I do know something, having watched Mahagosananda, who I've spoken about in other evenings, this beautiful Cambodian monk, the Gandhi of Cambodia, stand up in the midst of the refugee camps of people, the worst kind of violence and suffering, and recite to them the truth that hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. I know that he could stand there and match the sorrow and the horror of their lives with his strength of heart and with a truth that was greater. And I know that somewhere, each of us, in the face of what goes on in our own lives, in our community, in the society around us, and in the world at large, must find and demonstrate this other way. For each of you, it will be your own task to find out how to do that. For some of you, it will be to plant sequoias and redwoods that will mature in 2,000 years. The unarmed truth, says Martin Luther King, will have the final (coughs) word in this world. It always has and it always will. So our task, whatever the situation, is to find that place in ourselves that knows this unarmed truth and bear witness to that in our lives. It takes endurance and non-stubbornness and deep compassion for yourself and others and a sharing heart and a really great vision And that's part of why we practice, to ennoble ourselves, to bring that to our community, to the community outside of us at large, outside of this group that sits together this night on Monday, Um, to bring that spirit alive. And as Teilhard de Chardin said, someday after we have mastered the wind, the waves, the tide, and gravity, We shall harness for God the energies of the heart. Then, for the second time in the history of the world, we will have discovered fire. So let's sit for a minute.
as you sit quietly, just feeling your own body and breath, finding that sense of centeredness that can be here with the joys and the sorrows of your human life, the sorrows you've been given and the beauty you've been given. Centered in the midst of that, of all of that. And again, I will recite the points of reconciliation. Seated, seated face to face, so there isn't gossip behind people's backs, bringing it in the open. Remembrance and listening, speaking all that needs to be said with a respectful listening. Non-stubbornness, learning that stubbornness does not aid the process. Voluntary confession or apology, asking forgiveness for your part. Decision by consensus, listening to the wisdom of those around. Accepting the verdict, honoring what comes as compromise. and covering mud with straw, seeing that we have ways to cover the pains and conflict of the past consciously and caringly to allow us all to be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.